Hi there, my name is Ushin Lunny and welcome to Audio Talks, presented to you by Harman. And in this episode, we are going to meet one of the greatest names in modern music, a super heavy creative giant whose work has moved the hearts of millions through his countless hits, epic productions, musicals, concerts, and legendary scores for over 145 movies. He was named as one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time magazine, and his work has been recognised with no less than seven. Oscar nominations and two wins. He joins us from beautiful Chennai in God's own country of India. Welcome to the Harman Audio Talks podcast, the Mozart of Madras, A.R. Raman. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you here, A.R. Absolute pleasure. Um, so let's start at the beginning, if we may. Uh, talk to us a bit about when and how did you start making music? I started music uh, when I was very young and my father passed away when I was nine, and so I started as a session musician when I was 12. Uh, I was doing schooling and then going, playing programs and stuff. Then when I was 18, I got this interest to do jingles. And actually doing a lot of jingles, around 230, 300 jingles, and then I got my first break when I was 23, 24. And yeah, that movie, which the first movie became a major hit, and um, even though I was not intentionally trying to do film music because I wanted to go away from film music because I was there in films from childhood in South Indian movies. But I think destiny has its way. <laughs> Absolutely. And I've seen that you embrace music technology very much as well as mixing it with beautiful classical instruments. What's the role of music technology been as your career evolved through those different stages? Well, I, my father had a, a cog... Um, SH-700, wow. and he was one of the first ones to get it, and he, he got a free ticket to Japan in 73, 74 when he went to Singapore. And so when he passed away in 76, I had, you know, the synthesizer, I had uh, combo organs and all the stuff. So my toys were all those. <laughs> and my, he had a rhythm box and, you know, so many stuff. So my toys were these because it was all there, lying there when he, after he passed away, and I could, you know, I played in television like a little boy, and all the stuff. And then my curiosity was what next? And then MIDI came in, you know, musical instrument. MIDI came in around uh, 86, 87, and my life changed. <laughs> so the dependency on, uh, oh, I'm composing something, I need musicians to record, mm -hmm. changed, oh, I can do something within my headphones yeah, and listen to it. And if it's good, nobody's going to, you know, humiliate me if it's bad. <laughs> So that came in and then so then I started my studio in 89. 89 was, uh, you know, huge moment for me mm. when I owned my own music studio and that actually changed everything because the moment you are alone and you have all your gear and there's no one stopping you, it's at your house, you don't have to pay rent. And I said, this is real empowerment, something major has happened and that changed my life. Yeah. Wow, fantastic. So it sounds like music technology has had a real positive transformational role throughout your entire career. That's amazing. But I read once that in this home studio, it was very empowering, but also uh, there were issues with the power supply sometimes. So you had to, you know, you were working round the clock, doing all these jingles, doing all this work, and you had to have a, a kind of backup generator. But talk to us a bit about how you work today. It looks like a bit of a different setup behind you there. Yeah, so those days, um, you know, like I was very slow because... I literally had to play every instrument and I've, of course I would have used the strings and everything, but yeah. the post-production was mostly everything like tuning, chopping, 
you know, recording, everything was me. And then I, my friend H3, they used to come for mixing alone. So my speed was like probably 20 times slower than other composers who, who had an orchestra and everything. Because I wanted that way in my own intimacy and also the privacy of, of having my music so that I can construct and sculpt it the way I am. I wanted and uh, of course though every festival would have a release like Diwali is a big light festival in India yeah. and that's when you know my torture starts like <laughs> they would say you have to deliver this because we had to print it and he had to be sent for like thousand prints and wow. and no sleep no sleep company <sighs> no food and you just go yeah. and now things have changed now we have now I have a school and we have so many interns working and so many students who become, you know, producers and who are playing percussion, who can arrange some stuff and who can mix in another studio. And we have so many studios now. Speed is, we have UPS, no more generators in the road, <laughs> you know, loud generators so that, yeah, so life has changed. You know, throughout this process, have there been any particular composers that have really inspired and influenced you along the way? I think many composers. Uh, first of all, here in South India, there was M.S. Vishwanathan and K.B. Mahadevan. And I was working with for Mr. Raja, who was very well-versed in orchestral music and folk music and all the stuff. And then, of course, John Williams and Morricone and Vangelis, you know. Oh, yeah. And that's the uh, first time somebody breathed, you know, soul into electronics, I felt like. And, and they switched on back, Wendy Carlos you know, that Moog record in the 60s, that one record is, you know, it's, it's a university by itself. Yeah. And still, I think, I don't know how she did that. So these are the composers. And then, then Hans Zimmer came in much later where he was trying this hybrid kind of music. So these are the favorite. And of course, the, the greats, the Bach, Beethoven and Tchaikovsky and Stravinsky and Gershwin and yeah, all these people, of course. Fantastic. That's an education right there. What a playlist. And uh, I will be asking you to add a track to our title playlist a bit later on. But going back to your past, now you studied Western music as a student and listening to a track like Chinna Chinna Asai, there are a lot of Western and global pop influences in there as well. But the song is in the beautiful Tamil language. Um, talk to us a bit about bringing together global influences with that richness of the Indian heritage and culture. Is this something you've always been drawn towards? When I used to play in the studios, like in the 80s, um, anything which was alien to them, a synth sound, I said, no, 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 don't use that. Use an Indian instrument. So they were very picky and anal about it. And But I think the jingles kind of changed the whole thing. The jingles, when I was working in the commercials, I met a younger, younger crowd was more open and more international. And I was doing some international commercials, doing some of the national ones. So that changed. And um, then what I figured out is like, what would I like to listen as a young person? Why am I getting this boring stuff, you know, which is made for the movies, but I was more interested in, you know, Western rock bands and jazz and, and uh, all those kind of things. And I said, this is what people would like, because I like this. And if we can give it to them in a package where we have poetry in Tamil and great melodies and great production, so that could change everything. The courage to do that came in when I was feeling like I should not copy anybody, but, you know, move away from the expected thing to an experimental stage, where which I would be proud of doing stuff. So I met, of course, my mentor, 
who gave my first uh, opportunity, Mani Ratnam, whose movie just released, PS2, we scored for that. He was very supportive. He said, oh my God, I love what you're doing. Don't change. Don't listen to other people saying that, oh, this, this won't work. Whether it works or not, we'll be happy with it. If you are happy with it, we will be happy with it. So he was the one who gave me the courage to, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, that sounds, that kind of encouragement and mentorship can really o- open up an entirely new uh, horizon to you. That's beautiful to hear about that. And indeed, that big breakthrough arguably came with the soundtrack for Slumdog Millionaire on a global level. And your score picked up 15 awards, including two Grammys, a Golden Globe and a BAFTA. What was it like working on a movie of that epic scale? And what was the music production process like? I think uh, there's sort of this famous quote like, uh, good opportunities come with dirty clothes. <laughs> you never, you, you never realize what comes to you. But I, I was able to recognize that I was getting into something very interesting. Was um, you don't even recognize that it's a good thing, and you had to find out. And I think there was this, this beautiful email from Danny Boyle saying, "Hey, Ar, uh, I've loved what I heard from you know people, your work, and I'd love to work with you." And wow. I was swamped with uh, a lot of movies. I didn't have any time to do it. And then something told me like, I should do this just for the heck of it, just to get a break from, you know, the normal stuff. Yeah. And I went to one of my friends, Ashutosh Kavarika, who was working on a movie with me. I said, can I leave your movie? Because I want to do work with Danny Boyle and I don't think I'll get an opportunity like that again. Wow. He was like offended in a way. He said, no, you can't do this to me. But promise that you'll do the next movie. I said, yeah, of course I'll do the next movie. And so I took a break from him and accepted Danny Boyle's movie and you know the rest was the history I just did it on 18 cues with him I didn't know that he would make and put those cues as an amazing exposure in one of the pivotal point of the movie and what people experience I never knew that they could experience that way because usually I do like 130 cues and some of them get buried and but Danny uses like you know he uses the cues like to drive the the screenplay and then yes. on, on scenes, he never uses anything. So he has this amazing vision about music. And so it was it all worked out in the end. And then, yeah. Wow. Fantastic. That's amazing. That sounds like a real bit of good luck, but also maybe some guidance from your higher self or something like <laughs> this. It was a real moment of uh, divine inspiration. But I'd be interested to know, what was the single most challenging film project you've ever worked on so far? And uh, what did you learn from it? So far, has been everything's been good. Like um, those who come to me know my what I could do, because you know when you get a movie from your agent is when things could go wrong because there will be another expectation. But those who have come to me mostly have come for what I am. They've listened to something and so can you do the stuff like this? Can you? And then I said, no, I don't have to do the old stuff. I'll do some try something new. And it's this friendship and understanding and the trust is what makes music work. Sometimes, you know, you you take time to find that one theme and sometimes I have it already. And um, I think mostly it's the, the only trouble when we have, you know, limitations is like, um, you don't have enough time to complete the music, but there's a release date fixed. You know, that happens oh, yeah. a lot in India. It used to happen. Now things have changed. Yeah. And and any festival, I told you, like the festival comes in, boom, that they, they'll <laughs> just finish one month before the festival. I said, now we need the score. Now we need to release it. 
And now, because those days they had to put prints, now it's just a cube, it's just a hard disk. So you can upload it. So things have changed again. Some of the movies we just uploaded two, we finished the score just three days before the release. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so technology, technology is actually kind of, yeah. It's it's a double-edged sword there, you know, the, the deadline's extended closer and closer to the release date, but um, it sounds like you handle it all with very <laughs> typical calmness. Uh, do you have any routines for kind of maintaining that sense of calm and perspective? Yeah, I, I think, you know, that I follow the Sufi path and yes. it's one of the ways to reach sublime and it's about, um, you know, annihilating the, your ego and so this kind of helps you like all the evils of what comes with fame and money and and pride and everything is destroyed even before it comes to you. At least you try to destroy it. And that helps you to see the reality. The reality is like we're all temporary here. We're just on an excursion. And when you realize that there's no pressure, there's no pressure, there is there's trust and people trust you. You you have a sincerely there's ambition which also costs you know, breathlessness yeah. and, oh my God, I got to finish this. I need to, the sense of um, when people trust you, you work towards it passionately. You have under your le leadership, you know, you bring all your people up to speed. Yeah. Sometimes it gets a bit aggressive, but we all enjoy what we do. And that's the secret of the piece. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, there's, uh, from the sound of things, there's a lot to be said for harnessing the power of passion and a shared commitment rather than stress and pressure and the things that we associate with that ego-led approach to fame and success, as you say. So that's really inspiring. That's absolutely brilliant. Thank you. And um, talk to us a bit about your virtual reality project. That's super interesting, called Le Musk. How did this come about? Because it feels like a, a real transition from your previous projects. Yeah, I mean... After the Oscars, I was hanging out in Hollywood and meet friends who are script writers and cameramen and, and you know, go to the technology, you know, workshops and just sort of because I've, in Hollywood, you just do one score, right? Yeah. Not unlike in Chennai where I do like seven things at the same time in seven different <laughs> nice. studios. There you go. And they're watching you. What yeah. are you doing? Are you doing my movie? You know, so, so just chilled out. Like, you know, Monday to Friday you work and Saturday, Sunday, you just go out for all the stuff. Yeah. And one casual day. I met the, one of my friends, Shankar, and he said, hey, I did you check out this device? And he gave me a VR, you know, Samsung. Cool. I uh, I was not like, I'm not going to wear that thing. So I threw it off <laughs> and went back to India and said, okay, he gave it. He's a good friend. He knows what he's doing. So I bought the phone, put that in. Yeah. And then boom, something happened. I said, oh my God. For the first time, I felt like there was a paradigm shift in experiencing, you know, movies. And I was looking around on a still picture, you know, it was a CG generated space picture where things were floating. And it's just a still, 360, 3D still. And, and by the same time, I was, you know, speaking to my wife, who's a big fan of perfumes. And to cheer her up, I said one day, like, why don't we make a movie on perfumes, you know, based on perfumes? And she watches crime stuff. So I made up a story. We made up a story. Said, oh, this is girl and uh, her parents get killed and she needs to get, you know, smell and get the, you know, the people because she's not seen the faces, but she smelled them. So that was the, that was the idea. And then whole VR and this came together and then Intel joined the gang as a supporter of the project. And we thought, we went to Rome, we casted and we filmed it and I thought like naively, oh, I can release it in three months and 
Boom, it took six years to finish it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but we but we premiered at uh, Cannes Festival and there are amazing, kind remarks on that and then Hollywood and Canada. Now yeah. we are trying to move it to many other places. We're trying to produce a chess, uh, my version of chess, our studio version of the chess, cost-effectively so that we can, you know, go to multiple places and put that in. Fantastic. How exciting. And very groundbreaking as well. Nobody's ever done this before. This is just wonderful. I, I love the fact that you put this together with your wife as well. That's a, a beautiful <laughs> detail. Um, but talk to us a bit about your approach to, you know, sound with movies, because your your soundtracks are immersive. You know, do you think that's very important in the movie experience? What role does sound play? The thing is, like, I'm not limited in my imagination of, um, I was never limited, like, oh, this is budget and they don't have money for the orchestra. Yeah, I always had money for orchestra because I always kept that music is my thing. Even if they don't pay me, I'm going to pay the orchestra. I'm going. I want to get what I want because I'm doing the movie for my passion. Yeah, and so that was the idea. So there was no, never in my life I limited. Oh, I need a choir. Oh, I, they don't have the budget. I said, okay, I'll give the money, get the choir, and stuff like that. So my mind was like, if it's a small movie and if it needs a big sound. We'll go for it. It's a big movie. If it needs something smaller, yeah, we'll go for it. And so the limitations of the studio or production was never there. So my mind was like, how can I create something which is expansive and will make the people experience things in a different way rather than the tried and tested older ways? Mm. You're kind of engineering transformational experiences, you know, journeys that people go on. Do you see a role for more technology as you're moving forward in terms of the experiences you create in the cinema and, you know, for multimedia? Absolutely. I think now with Atmos and, you know, I have, I'm sitting in this whole JBL design studio, you know, M2s and all these speakers out there. And we listen to some of the Atmos audio without visual. For the first time, you don't miss a visual. Because the yeah. audio itself is so satisfying that people, yesterday I was um, recording with, a couple of days back, I was recording with Shreya Goshal, one of the leading singers of India. Mm. And I said, I want you to listen to one of the songs. So I played her one of the songs. And she just listened to eight bars and closed her mind, closed her eyes and she listened. I was like, I didn't need any visual. For the first time, you know, wow. audio itself is so fulfilling. And I think yeah. that's one of the breakthroughs in Audio definitely, and audio mixes now. Everybody's supporting Atmos mixes, yes. And these speakers and this whole technology leading up to the ease of how we can do these mixes faster is yeah. also fantastic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Wow. And do you think you know in this modern age, you know, you spoke about the VR headset and all this kind of stuff. You know, people have phones, they have tiny screens, little speakers, etc. Do you think great sound is still important? Absolutely. I think. Um, the more finer we go, the more better the mixes are, the more, um, what do you call ambient and, and we can, there's so many different styles because they, I think they're going to experience, um, the engagement of the listener is going to be more. Yeah. The moment it's mixed beautifully, it's not just that because you know, people are not paying for music anymore. It's streaming. Unlike, you know, we, we used to go buy a CD or a LP or not anymore. And so for them to really, um, you know, catch their attention and intrigue them, I think all these things are very, very important. And it's reached the, like through the iPods or whatever, you know, this, 
headphones, you you get the experience of a theater now, right? With with all the new techniques and it it's more work for us, but also more jobs, which is great. It's creating more jobs in the the music industry, which is great. Definitely. So the industry is kind of rising with that entire tide of new technology and it's kind of inspiring and there's more opportunities for people to have these immersive yeah. experiences. And uh, one of the things I feel about your work when I listen to it is that, you know, you take people away to a different place and time, you create empathy and a deep global sense of human connection. And uh, you mentioned your Sufi practice earlier. Is there an element of a kind of spiritual transformation about the work that you present to the world? Very true. Like, I think if you, if you take an instrument player, like if you take the sarangi or the saror or the shanai, what they're playing is actually what they're singing. And if they if you ask them to sing, they're almost singing like what they're playing. So that's what reflects on the on the hand. Very true to a composer too. What I'm inside is going to reflect my outside. Or my, you know, my, my, my body is a medium, my mind is a medium to collect something beautiful and bring it to people. Mm. And if I'm my vessel is dirty, it's the music is going to be dirty. <laughs> the music is going to reflect what I'm inside. So mm. it forces you to be puritanical in a way, you know. And most of the stuff like that kind of stuff, not the horror stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The 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 songs and and the progression and the only way you can judge is be transparent, as like be an empty slate. Mm. to receive the blessing and whatever you believe in you know you might just believe in humanity you believe in good thoughts in the joy of giving the joy of giving love and each one of us have a trick to you know transcend to that realm and that's what I think fuels our creativity that's what makes us what we are and yeah. so I respect each one's the way they're doing it, but they're using that as a resource to manifest beauty outside, whether yeah. they're artists or, you know, anybody. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well said. Well said. That's beautiful. That's words to live by. And, uh, you know, this is very much coming into your your practice as, uh, as somebody who inspires the world. You know, I've been so impressed with what you're doing, your focus on nurturing future generations of creatives and musicians. Um, tell us a bit about the KM Music Conservatory that you have down there in beautiful Chennai in India. The KM actually came in when um, I used to buy, I mean, of course, you know, the big consoles, half a million pounds. And I used to think like I buy this and in two years I have to sell it for like one eighth if I had to <laughs> Yeah. And where do we get there? What if we invest in people? What if we invest in nurturing this below poverty line? You know, that's the wealth of India. Everything is a blessing and a curse. If you want it as a blessing, it is a blessing. And I felt like it is a blessing. Having people, having souls, you know, move around earth is a blessing. And how do we nurture them to be committed to music, which is going to be beautiful later? So I think one on 2008, I told one of my colleagues that I want to start a music school and it should be free. And he said, no, don't be dumb. Free would never sell. They won't take it seriously. <laughs> and he was right. So I said, okay, let's, let's get from people, students who pay and we'll facilitate great teachers and make this amazing and we'll give it to the people who need it. So, um, so this happened and in three years we had this orchestra and we have amazing students who are singing opera music and, you know, compost national stuff 
and and then this whole orchestra called the Sunshine Orchestra we formed, you know, taking underprivileged kids, and now they are like the the shining stars, the flag bearers of our conservatory. They're playing all over the place. They can play Indian classical to folk to jazz to classical at a snap of a you know just see and read. And which is fantastic. And they can do the portamentos of Indian classical music to the vibrato and vibrato of Western classical. And so, wow. yeah, so this happened because I felt like my my generation of musicians were getting old and we are actually harvesting what my older generation planted and we have not planted anything. So this is the tree we I planted and with my colleagues and with all the people involved who've been kind enough to give the time and there's some of them are even from abroad. They've come in and taken Tamil Nadu as the state and living here. Wonderful, wonderful. And you have reached the top of the music industry in many respects, but it feels like it's very much about what you can give back. You spoke there about growing the tree, the future generations of musicians, but you also set up a foundation, the A.R. Rahman Foundation. How has this approach to sharing your success with that kind of generous heart how does it change the way that you feel about the world? I think there's a famous quote, what you have is not yours, what you give is yours. And I truly believe that. And even to my kids, I said, what you have is not yours. What you give, your love, what you give, the charity you give, the nurturing you give, the smiles you give is yours. What you take is not yours. It's finite. But what you give is infinite. Mm. And why I'm saying that is that's how we are tuned human beings untuned by giving we're receiving and by giving you never you know exhaust your wealth or your spirituality or anything it just gets more it's like you're cleaning the old stuff and new good things are going to come to you and so i i kind of feel odd when people want to have everything on their own they're selfish they don't want to give even praises even even you know appreciation i think you should be generous you should be generous and that that goes a long way of course, we all learn the hard way and we realize life teaches you what's right, what's wrong over the course of like 40 years. Yeah. Speaking of which, you know, I think there might be in the world many people who achieve success, but they haven't been on quite the same journey spiritually as you have. And they don't really have that generous viewpoint. And it is very much about hoarding as much as possible. Do you think the world would be a better place if people with success had your approach and adopted that spirit of generosity, what do you think it, that could mean for the world? I think, you know what, like my mom is an inspiration because mm. she embraced that kind of idea of giving and uh, whether it's food or help or anything. I, my father was like that when he was alive. A lot of people, a lot of great musicians keep saying that your father helped me when I couldn't, you know, support my family. He said, come and sit in the last row of the violin. Whether you play or not, we'll give the money to you. So these things were very inspiring when I was growing up. I said, to have a father like that who passed away, I, ha I should be at least like one one hundredth of what he is. And so he was an inspiration, definitely. Um, even though he died in a very, um, that's the dark period of my life, watching him die on stuff. So um, I wouldn't say that I wouldn't say that I'm perfect and I'm like the idealistic person to follow. Everybody follows their own thing and they achieve. But the joy of giving is definitely, I'll, I'm proud of that about my family. Yeah. Um, not being judgy about everything. I feel like everybody's equal. 
and our deeds and our, what we're doing is actually, you know, distinguishes from other people. And the more we do, mm. the better. And the joy of giving, whether it's music or whether it's uh, knowledge or facilitating things or connecting this whole divided world is the biggest achievement, I think. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned that the work that your father was doing, kind of looking after musicians and building that sense of community, that's a very generous thing to do. But, you know, we live in an age where music technology is moving so fast. We have AI now and AI can do what many musicians can do. I mean, what do you think might happen to the master musicians in this era of AI? Like I read something, you have to treat AI like our children. You teach what you want them to do right? It yeah. doesn't have a mind of its own. And uh, we have to shape that. If we make, we yeah. can make them a monster or we can make them a good student. Hmm. Uh, if you make them a monster, we're all in, you know, and leaders have to be very responsible. They have to think that human beings have families. They are the magic. They are the miracle of this world and nothing should replace them. And yeah. that responsible leaders can't just make try shortcuts and try cheap things when they get money and fire people out they need to understand there is a curse there's a human spiritual power which will destroy them if they do anything to them right so we need to be responsible like leaders like big big corporates can't replace people will humans are irreplaceable because if, you, if the moment when i bought the computer when in 86 composers that oh that's it musicians have done they're going to go you know, these mm -hmm. things are going to come replaced, but they couldn't be replaced because they, there's still things which musicians do and what happens with their in instruments and the soul um, is much more faster than programming a computer to make it yeah. sound human. So wh what is the point of making computer things human then get a... So I think that even the, the instrument players are much better now. They have much more, they're faster. Yeah. The younger generation is doing some stuff which even the older generation couldn't. They're playing better, they're singing better because they have knowledge from the internet, which is great. Amazing. So the future is bright for that real human talent, but, you know, we do have to look out for it in this uh, technological age. Those are great words of advice there. And uh, my final question for you now, AR, is when you accepted, I think it was your first Oscar, you said, all my life, I had a choice between hate and love. I chose love and I'm here. Is there one piece of advice which has been consistently valuable throughout your entire life? That's it. Choose love. <laughs> <laughs> Why? It's so generic, but you understand the the layers of what it is. Yeah. If somebody offends you on the internet, choose love. Because that hate is going to actually not good for you. Hate is like a poison in your heart. And that comes into your heart or your brain, it's going to damage you and the other person. So better throw it out, flush it out, and keep love. And the whole world is beautiful when you look through the, the glasses of love. Well said, well said. Absolutely beautiful. And finally, could I please invite you to contribute a track for our VIP title playlist? Okay, I've done a musical called Why. I think there is um, there's a song called Beyond. It's called Beyond Time, Beyond. Yeah. Fantastic. 
Okay. That's okay. and uh, what's the reason you chose that one? Is that just close to your heart? Yeah, I think it's it's uh listen to it, you'll understand. Okay. Oh, beautiful. Okay, I can't wait. That's brilliant. Well, thank you so much. And I am actually going to add a track myself to our title playlist, which is of course one of yours. It is the exquisite Mumbai theme tune, and I believe this is an adaptation of a track that was on the film Bombay and it was featured on one of the wonderful Cafe Del Mar compilations many moons ago, uh, which were my personal gateway to the incredible world of AR's music. Uh, a long time ago. Um, so thank you so much for your wonderful music, your inspiring words, your, your beautiful heart. And thank you for joining us on the Harman Audio Talks podcast, A.R. Raman. Thank you so much, Harman. Thank you. And uh, I would also like to say a big shout to Yogesh from Harman India for organising this. This is a, a real pleasure. So listeners, don't forget to subscribe, comment and share Audio Talks with your friends and family. If you're enjoying the Audio Talks series of podcasts, why not pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your favourite podcasts and leave a nice review. It really does mean a lot and it helps new listeners get to know about the legendary guests we talk to in every episode, like A.R. Rahman. In the meantime, for more exclusive content, some behind the scenes goodies and maybe even some competitions, connect with us over on Instagram. You can find us at Audio Talks Podcast. We'll be back soon for some more epic audio talks. See you next time.